We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 23 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Tuesday, March 23rd, 2021. It is a whammy of a day if you're like me and are a Maryland fan. Pretty, that was not on Monday night. The Terrapins run out of the gym by Alabama. The Terrapins humbled by Alabama. As the Iron Sheik would say. Make him humble. Yes, Sheiky baby. Make him humble. And the Terrapins were made humble. On Monday night, and then came what Mark Turgeon said after the game. Comments that epitomize what has happened to Maryland basketball. There was a time when making the Sweet 16 was a given. A long ways away are we from those days. My thoughts, my reaction, my analysis to what happened between Maryland and Alabama on Monday night, what Mark Turgeon said, and where we are with the Turge. All of that is coming up momentarily. Lots for you today on the Washington football team off another quiet day on Monday. We pretty clearly now are into that second wave of free agency. The big splashes are over, though I guess the Giants aren't done making big splashes. Corner Adoree Jackson signing with the Giants on Monday. But also on Monday was Ryan Fitzpatrick on a podcast opening up on why he signed with Washington. I want to get into that as well as what exactly is the deal regarding competition at quarterback. Is there going to be what I want there to be, a legit, good faith, open, and honest quarterback competition for a Washington football team? Or is the fix already in? Is it predestined that old Fitzmagic is going to be the QB1 in 2021? Special guest on the podcast on this Tuesday, John Sheeran, co-host of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. Uh, you can also read his work on CincyJungle.com, which is the SB Nation blog 
for the Cincinnati Bengals. He's going to tell us all we need to know about William Jackson III. You got the three big free agent signings for Washington so far. We know about Fitzpatrick. We know about Curtis Samuel. But what about old WJ3? You know, it's not always easy knowing about corners. So we're going to address that and welcoming John onto the pod. What exactly is Washington getting in Jackson? Is he a true number one corner? Why didn't the Bengals resign Jackson? And I'll talk Nationals and Orioles today. We'll look at those Nats position players who've done well in the exhibition season so far. What might those performances mean? And I will explore the issue for every Orioles fan that refuses to go away. The Chris Davis issue. The Chris Davis mess. The Chris Davis debacle, one of the worst contracts in sports history, still two years to go on that contract, and Brandon Hyde on Monday saying that Davis now could miss the first two months of the season with, ahem, a back injury. Uh, yeah, his back hurts. He's going to miss the first two months. Sorry. Okay, bye. Uh, yeah, uh, we'll get into that a little bit later on. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. You can tweet me, at Al Galdi. You know, speaking of William Jackson, I got this tweet from Day Drink Believer on Monday. I love some of these Twitter names. What do you think of Billy Jack as a nickname for William Jackson? You know, I've heard all kinds of nickname ideas already, especially with Washington having signed both Curtis Samuel and William Jackson, you know, do some kind of a play on Samuel Jackson. Uh, Billy Jack, I had not yet heard. That's kind of intriguing, Day Drink Believer. Now, I don't know, is that a reference to the all-time pro wrestling legend Billy Jack Haynes, the master of the full Nelson in the 80s. Uh, if it is, I love that nickname even more. But we can maybe work with Billy Jack. I mean, William Jackson has gone by WJ3. But <laughs> given our history with guys who have a nickname that ends in the number three, I'm probably thinking we shouldn't do that. Although he may want to do that. So we'll have to figure that out as time goes on here. Before we move any further, though, a salute to the skies on this Tuesday podcast. To Elgin Baylor, uh, passing away of natural causes on Monday at the age of 86. Elgin Baylor, as you certainly know, one of the greatest basketball players ever. A 10-time All-NBA selection, 14 seasons with the Lakers, 1958 to 1971. Averaged a double-double for his career, 27.4 points, 13.5 rebounds. Uh, Elgin Baylor, one of just four players in NBA history to average at least 25 points and 10 rebounds over his career. The other guys, Wilt Chamberlain, Bob Pettit, and Carl Malone. Uh, not bad company to be in the midst of. Baylor made eight NBA Finals appearances, but never won a championship. And this is one of the thing about those Lakers of like the 60s, 70s. A lot of NBA Finals appearances, but not a lot of championships. The Celtics owned the Lakers for years, right? That Elgin Baylor, Jerry West era, that, that's kind of one of the real themes of that era. Good enough to get to NBA Finals, but not good enough to win NBA Finals. Jerry West has talked about that a bunch over the years. And one of the pains of the playing career of Elgin Baylor, so he retired early in the 71-72 season due to knee problems. And then the Lakers end up winning the NBA championship that season. The Lakers won the NBA title for the 1971-72 season Baylor was a part of that team, but retired early in the season. And then the Lakers go on to win the championship that year. That, that, that's that you hate to, you hated to see that, uh, with what Elgin Baylor did in his career, but he had an all time great career. In fact, he holds the single game NBA final scoring record, 61 points against the Celtics in 1962, lost seven game series to the Celtics on three different occasions, uh, in the NBA finals. 
Then, of course, became a general manager for the Los Angeles Clippers, Baylor did. That did not go so well, but a lot of that had nothing to do with Elgin Baylor. The Clippers, of course, were an embarrassment for years under Donald Sterling. But for our purposes, Elgin Baylor is truly relevant because he is the best high school player in Washington, D.C. history. Elgin Baylor is the GOAT, and there really isn't that much debate about that. He played at an all-black high school, Spingarn High School. He, as a senior, was named first team Washington All-Met, was the first black player to be named first team Washington All-Met. This area has such a rich history when it comes to high school basketball. You know, like if you expanded out D.C., Maryland, Virginia, right, you're talking about so many all-time greats. You know, Danny Ferry, Johnny Dawkins, Grant Hill, Walt Williams, Randolph Childress, Steve Francis, of course, Len Bias, Adrian Dantley. But the best of the bunch, certainly from D.C., and maybe out of all those guys, like even if you're talking just all-time DMV high school hoops, Elgin Baylor. An all-time legend. You know, John Thompson, who I got to work with for years at 980, had a saying when it came to Elgin Baylor in regards to other all-time great high school players in Washington, D.C. And the saying simply was, if you're ranking the all-time D.C. high school players, Elgin Baylor is number one, count five spaces, and then put whoever you want at number two. Like, that's how good Elgin Baylor was in comparison to everyone else who came through the D.C. high school basketball scene over the years. A true legend, rest in peace, Elgin Baylor. Uh, not quite yet having achieved legendary status in these parts is Mark Turgeon. And boy, do we have a lot to get into now. The Maryland basketball season is over, and now the question becomes, should Mark Turgeon's tenure as Terrapins head coach be over? The 10-seeded Terrapins losing to number two-seeded Alabama 96-77 at Bankers Life Fieldhouse, home of the Indiana Pacers in Indianapolis in the second round of the NCAA tournament late night on Monday night. You know, this was a game, at least initially, uh, Terps in the first half led by as many as seven points at 14-7, but then allowed Bama to win the rest of the game 89-63. It was a game, and then it was a game for no more. The Terps trailed for the entire second half, during which they never got closer than eight points. And how about that explosive run by Bama in the second half? Maryland in the second half went from trailing by nine at 51-42 to trailing by 23 at 65-42, thanks to like the quickest 14-0 run in the history of basketball. Alabama went on a 14-0 run that took less than two minutes. It was amazing. If you remember the line from Ron Burgundy, that escalated quickly. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. Yeah, that perfectly applies to what happened between Maryland and Alabama on Monday night. Terrapins down by nine and then down by 23 and in like the blink of an eye. Uh, Maryland's great defense, not so great in this game on Monday night. Terps allowed Bama to shoot 53% from the field, including 16 to 33 on threes. I raved, and justifiably so, about the Terrapins defense once again on Monday's podcast of what we saw from the Terrapins in the win over UConn in the first round on Saturday night. Uh, that kind of defense not on display on Monday night. Terps allowed two Bama starters, Jaden Shackelford and John Petty Jr., to go combine 9-17 on threes and to combine for 41 points. Look, we knew this is what Bama was going to want to do. 
chuck the three and chuck it a lot. Okay, Bama through the first round of the NCAA tournament, number one in Division One in both three-point attempts and made threes, and the Terps couldn't stop them. I mean, Maryland just could not stop Bama from doing as it wanted to do offensively, 16 of 33 on threes. And the other thing that Maryland could not stop at all was Alabama dictating the pace of the game. We discussed this on Monday's podcast. This was a classic battle of who's going to dictate the pace. Maryland plays ultra slow. Bama plays uber fast. Through the first round of the tournament, Bama 13th in Division One for TeamRankings.com in possessions per game. Maryland 336. It was not a mystery. What Bama wanted to do, run and gun, shoot the three. What Maryland wanted to do, slow things down, reduce the number of possessions, make it, you know, a grinded out Big Ten kind of matchup. And Bama's way of doing things prevailed. The final score ends up being 96-77. Okay, we're used to these Maryland games now being in like the 60s, if not the 50s. You know, the, the Big Ten-itis has very much infected Maryland since it joined that conference. But how about this? Maryland giving up 96 points on Monday night. Most points allowed by Maryland in a game in more than a decade. you got to go back to February 27, 2010, a 104-100 double overtime win for the Terps at Virginia Tech. That was the last time that Maryland gave up at least 96 points in a game. If you're a Maryland fan, you probably remember that game. That that was a very famous game. Gravis Vasquez, 41 points in that game. Didn't necessarily shoot the ball great in that game, but 41 in a college game, even a double overtime game. Uh, One of the big performances that Gravis ever had at Maryland. But the 96 points given up by the Terps, not just a reflection of the defense not being great, also a reflection, again, of Bama dictating the pace. Maryland wanted to play one way. Bama wanted to do things the opposite way. And Bama forced its way down the throat of Maryland. Uh, also, Terps got eviscerated on the boards once again. This, of course, was a big issue against UConn, but the Terps overcame getting uh, smashed on the glass in that game, especially from an offensive rebounding standpoint. Couldn't do that on Monday night. Maryland out-rebounded by Alabama 40-19, including 15-4 on the offensive glass. And whereas on Saturday night, the Terps really didn't give up that many second-chance points to UConn because, again, Maryland's defense was so good in that game. That was not the case on Monday night. Terps had six second chance points. Bama had 23. Now, it was interesting with Maryland offensively because here you had Bama through the first round of the NCAA tournament, number one in Division One per Kempom.com in adjusted defensive efficiency. Yes, Bama, as of the end of this first round, the best defensive team in the country. Maryland actually shot the ball pretty well, certainly on twos on Monday night. Maryland went 22-33 on its twos. But did struggle on threes, just 10 of 27 on threes, could not match that Bama firepower from beyond the arc. Aaron Wiggins was good, 5 of 8 on threes, but the rest of the Terps, a mere 5 of 19 on threes in the game. And so Maryland lost, and it ended up really not being that competitive. It was another bad moment for the Big Ten in this NCAA tournament. Uh, The Terps losing that game means that just one of the Big Ten's nine teams in this NCAA tournament get to the Sweet 16. That's it. One of nine is what the Big Ten ends up being in terms of making it to the second quote-unquote weekend of the tournament, even though uh, this year the first weekend extended into Monday. But, you know, this is how the NCAA tournament is. Big Ten lauded by many, including myself, as the best conference in the country. It's not been a great NCAA tournament, clearly, for the Big Ten. Meanwhile, the Pac-12, which has been underwhelming for years, killing it in this NCAA tournament. Pac-12, 9-1 over the first two rounds of the NCAA tournament. Four of the Sweet 16 teams 
Pac-12 team. So go figure. Like, it just was not a good first two rounds for the Big Ten, and Maryland sadly ends up being a part of that. So that brings us to what I think is the A topic, the true biggest bone to pick at uh, off this Maryland loss to Alabama, off the end of the Maryland Terrapins 2020-21 season. And that is Mark Turgeon. Boy, was there a lot of outrage after this loss on Monday night. Boy, was there venom being spewed from so many of you at the Turge after this game on Monday night. And I don't blame you. I don't blame you one bit. So I've discussed for a while here where we're at with Mark Turgeon contractually. He, in October 2016, signed a contract extension through the 2022-2023 season. I remember when that extension got signed, I was like, whoa, that... That's kind of aggressive, you know. They didn't really need to do that, but I guess they really like what they're seeing from Mark Turgeon, and that's going to take us uh, for a while here. Well, a while is uh, almost complete. Now, yeah, you got two more years until the end of that contract, 2022-2023, but we know how it works from a recruiting standpoint. You don't ever want a head coach even coming close to being in a lame duck situation because you want to be able to effectively recruit, and you don't want others negatively recruiting against you. Now, Mark Turgeon is well compensated. Per USA Today Sports, Mark Turgeon for this season, even when you factor in COVID-19 pandemic-induced reduction of salary, being paid $2.937 million. If you want to buy him out, that buyout as of April 1st of this year per USA Today Sports, $6.647 million. So let's start with that, the contract, the finances of this. Uh, I don't have access to Maryland's books, okay? But we all know that every school has suffered because of the pandemic financially. We know that with Maryland, too, things are complicated off the Jordan McNair tragedy in football and the financial impact that that's had on things. So are you in a position, if you're Maryland, to be buying out turds into the tune of, again, $6.647 million? Maybe the Terps are, okay? Like I said, I haven't seen the books here lately. And all it takes, truthfully, is a donor who's willing to ante up, you know, Kevin Plank or whoever to write the check to make the buyout happen. So it can go down, but I don't know realistically that that's something that Maryland can be doing. But the real item here, of course, is should Maryland be wanting to do that? Should Maryland be wanting to part ways now with Mark Turgeon? This season was Mark Turgeon's 10th season as Terps head coach. He has made the NCAA tournament with Maryland in five of the nine seasons for which there has been an NCAA tournament because, of course, we did not have an NCAA tournament in 2020. And if you narrow the focus, Mark Turgeon has made the NCAA tournament in five of the last six seasons for which there has been an NCAA tournament. So he's making NCAA tournaments, the Turges, but he's not doing anything in those NCAA tournaments. Mark Turgeon with the Terps has made one Sweet 16 appearance. That was back in 2016. For comparison's sake, Gary Williams made the Sweet 16 seven times in making the NCAA tournament in each of 11 consecutive seasons. From 1993-94 through 2003-2004, Maryland made the NCAA tournament every year and made the Sweet 16 seven times out of those 11 seasons. It's so funny looking back on that because one of the big complaints before Maryland made the back-to-back Final Fours in 2001-2002, and of course won the National Championship in 2002, was that 
quote-unquote all Gary could do was make the Sweet 16. Like, that was it. Well, he'll get to the Sweet 16, but that's it, you know? He's a choking dog in the Sweet 16. Or, yeah, we'll make Sweet 16s. Okay, great, but we want more. We're better than that. We deserve that. Gary Williams can't do that. He can't get us past the Sweet 16. Look at where we are now. We would kill for seven Sweet 16 appearances in 11 years. You got one now. One since Gary's last Sweet 16 appearance all the way back in 2003. Perspective is everything, people. What Gary used to get shredded for, we would now kill for as Maryland basketball fans. So Turgeon is making NCAA tournaments, but he's not doing anything in those NCAA tournaments. And yeah, there's some bad luck involved. You know, you go back to what happened in 2019, that 69-67 loss to LSU in the second round. Terps in that game overcoming a 15-point first-half deficit, tying the game on a huge right corner three by Jalen Stick-Smith with 25.8 seconds left, but then giving up the game-winning driving layup by Tremont Waters with 1.6 seconds left. Like, yes, that could have been a Sweet 16 team that season, but it wasn't. You know, you think about what might have been in 2020. Had there been an NCAA tournament? What was Mark Turgeon's best Maryland team? The Terps, remember, won the Big Ten regular season title for the 2019-2020 season. But you can't just assume that Maryland would have made a Sweet 16 or something even better than that in 2020. And what if Maryland had been one and done or two and done in that NCAA tournament? I mean, that's more than plausible given what we've seen here. It's been rough. And I know it's not necessarily fair that we judge college basketball success by what happens in this one and done tournament every March, or at least in most marches, but that's the way the sport works. And with Mark Turgeon, you've made one Sweet 16 over his 10 seasons. That's it. That's what you're looking at. That's not good enough. That's not what the Maryland basketball program is supposed to be. Now, with Mark Turgeon as Maryland coach, you have avoided the crater season. And I think there is something to be said for that. I mean, I think the basic way to describe Turgeon as Terps head coach is high floor, low ceiling. All right. The ceiling is low. Like we just outlined one sweet 16 appearance, but the floor has been high. Turgeon's worst season as Maryland head coach, his first season, 2011, 2012, uh, Terps that year, 17 and 15 overall, 6 and 10 in the ACC. Not a good season, but not some like, oh my God, all time debacle of a season. Uh, like I said, Turgeon as recently as last year, 2019, 2020, Big Ten regular season championship. Terps that season, 24 and 7 overall, 14 and 6 in the conference. Turgeon does g- good enough to never just totally fall apart. Turgeon's teams have been generally good defensively, at times excellent defensively, as was the case for this season, even though Monday night was not an excellent defensive performance. But Turgeon's Maryland teams also are slow and frustrating offensively. You know, Maryland, like I keep saying, has been infected with the Big Ten-itis, plays a very slow plotting style, doesn't run and gun as much as I certainly want them to, and I know a lot of you have wanted them to over the years. And you have these scoring droughts with Turgeon's teams that are just the worst, right? I mean, I don't know what it is, but every season, Maryland is prone to these like multi-minute scoring droughts, it feels like, game in and game out. Turgeon, I mean, I give him a lot of credit. He gets his guys to play defense, which not every coach can do, okay? See Scott Brooks. But offensively, Maryland just lacks a lot and has for a while here. Turgeon, by all indications, is a good man who does things the right way. I think it's worth mentioning that because in college basketball, you can't say that about everyone. I don't look at Turgeon and think he's some jerk. I don't look at Turgeon and think he's someone who, man, he's just a real bad representative for the program. No, not at all. I think he's a good guy. I think he does things 
the right way. But I think something that is so telling with this entire Turgeon scenario is this. Even in this season, a season in which Turgeon, I think, has done his best coaching job, coaching up a roster uh, that just doesn't have a ton of talent. Now, of course, you have to also say who's responsible for the roster, and it is Mark Turgeon. So this flawed, underwhelming roster that Turgeon has done such a good job with, you have to say, well, why is it flawed and underwhelming? Well, because of Turgeon, right? Because of his recruiting. He did not plan appropriately for what this roster was going to end up being. But even in this season in which Turgeon did do a good coaching job, he still has not gotten any kind of public commitment from his boss. It's been impossible to ignore this if you're a Maryland fan. The recent words of the director of athletics, Damon Evans, he has been consistently non-committal regarding Turgeon. Evans on Glenn Clark Radio back in February regarding Turgeon's status. Quote, well, you know, that wouldn't be appropriate for me to talk about an employee's contract over the phone. But at the right time, I will sit down and Mark and I will will have those discussions moving forward. End quote. Evans a month later on 1057 The Fan in Baltimore. Quote, recruiting is important. Let's leave it at that. Recruiting is extremely important. You got to have that old saying is, it's not as much about the X's and the O's as it is about the Jimmy's and the Joe's. And so you got to make sure that you take care of that side of it. End quote. A total deflection of an answer. A total non-answer answer there from Evans on Turgeon. And that most recent one, that was just from like a few weeks ago. I mean, you couldn't say anything along the lines of, hey, Mark's our head coach. He's under contract for the next few years. We have no interest in moving on from Mark Turgeon. I mean, nothing. Like, no backing, nothing. It's You know, he gave the old cliche about X's and O's and Jimmy's and Joe's and that kind of a thing. Uh, that doesn't sound very promising if you're Mark Turgeon. But I think that perfectly captures this. A season in which the guy has done his best coaching job at the school, he's still not getting public commitment from his boss because Evans recognizes, like the rest of us do, that things can and should be better here. Now, of course, there's always a danger in saying, well, we we can do better than this guy. Get him out of here and let's get somebody else in here. There's always a danger in doing that because when you get rid of somebody like that, you can end up doing worse. And that happens. That's happened That's happened actually quite a bit in college sports over the years. A program thinks it's better than where it's currently at, gets rid of a guy who isn't terrible, but also isn't great, and then, and then ends up being worse. I mean, that's happened many times in college sports. So you have to be careful with that if you're a Maryland fan. You can't just say, fire Turgeon, move on from Turgeon. Okay, then what? Who's next? Is he better than Mark? What are we looking at here? But I know this. This is a program that not that long ago made the Sweet 16 seven times in 11 seasons. I know the landscape of college basketball is different, more parity, scholarship limits, etc. But man, what happened to that? Why can't we get back to that? And on what planet is one Sweet 16 appearance over 10 seasons? You know, nine if you want to say, okay, no NCAA tournament last year. One Sweet 16 appearance over nine seasons. How is that good enough? Like, wh- why do we settle for that? Why should we be accepting of that? And to put a cap on all this is what Mark Turgeon said late on Monday night during his virtual postgame press conference. Take a listen to what Turgeon said regarding how this Maryland team should be remembered. Quote, I think they're going to be remembered as a team that sacrificed, was undersized, Guys played out of position, and they went to the final 32, right? I mean, come on. 
We weren't a Final Four team. Come on, let's be real. I think we maximized this team extremely well, end quote. Turgeon has gotten harpooned since he said those words late on Monday night. And I get it. That's not what the Maryland fan wants to hear. Now, that doesn't mean that everything Turgeon said there was wrong, but just because something is true doesn't mean that you say it. And if you're trying to establish a program that achieves excellence, that strives for high achievement, that wants to make not just Sweet 16s, but Elite Eights and Final Fours, you don't talk that way. You don't talk about how, hey, come on, really? We weren't that good, okay? We made the Final 32. We made the second round. Golly gee, we did a swell job. Like, no! Nobody wants to hear that, especially after you got ripped by the two-seeded Alabama Crimson Tide on a Monday night like that. Nobody is interested in hearing that. If you're trying to establish a culture, if you're trying to establish a tone, if you're trying to set the bar high for your program, you don't talk that way. And it's just not the way to talk. Now, Turgeon does this. He'll say things. He'll complain about things. He'll, you know, he'll, he'll discuss things openly. Like he wears his emotions on his sleeve a lot, which I, you know, I, I do think that you could say like that's kind of endearing and charming. Like he, he can't sort of keep his true feelings inside. So he doesn't BS you at these press conferences. He says how he's feeling, you know, but he'll say things like, well, well, well we're young, you know, and then nobody wants to hear that, you know, or well, you know, the guys are tired. Like nobody wants to hear that. And when you go from, again, seven sweet 16s in 11 seasons, back-to-back Final Fours 0102, to now this, one sweet 16 over your 10 seasons as a head coach, and more globally speaking, right, one sweet 16 since 2003, the Maryland fan, myself included, not interested in hearing that kind of thing. Just because something is true, okay, that the team was undersized, that guys did play out of position, that realistically, probably, this was never a Final Four team, it doesn't mean that you say that, okay? It doesn't mean that you put that out there. And of course, him saying that serves a purpose, right? Him saying that defends himself. Him saying that props him and his coaching staff up. When he says, I think we maximized this team extremely well, he's complimenting himself. And actually, he's not complimenting his players. When he talks about how the team really wasn't that good, guys were undersized, this wasn't a Final Four team. Again, is he right? Yes, probably. But you don't say that. And you're putting down your players when you say that. And you're putting yourself up. You're pushing them down and you're propping yourself up when you say something like, I think we maximized this team extremely well. I I just, I did not want to hear that on Monday night. And yet Turgeon put that out there and he's getting filleted for saying that. And I get it. Good guy. He's not a bad guy. And he's not truthfully a bad coach. He isn't. He's a mediocre coach. He's a middle of the pack kind of coach. You can do worse than him. Yes. But you can also do better. And if Maryland feels like it can do better, if Maryland feels like, okay, yeah, it's not nothing to buy this guy out, but we have the financial wherewithal to do so. Again, $6.647 million per USA Today Sports as of April 1st to buy out the Turge. If Maryland can do that, I'm not against Maryland doing that. I don't know, though, what the finances are. And you do have to ask the question, well, who you got coming in next? And you better be darn sure that who you got coming in is going to be an upgrade. Okay, because the last thing you want is to part ways with Turgeon, bring somebody else in, and you know, you're five and 20 next season, deep into the season. Like, no, 
Uh, that's not what we're aiming for here. Things could be worse. I mean, Turgeon, like I said, he has gotten the team the NCAA tournament five of the last six seasons for which there has been an NCAA tournament. Uh, that's not nothing. I don't dismiss that. Just like I never dismissed Gary making seven sweet 16s over 11 years. Ask the Georgetown fan if he or she would take five NCAA tournament appearances over the last six seasons for which there has been an NCAA tournament. But at the same time, I'm not going to sit here and just blindly defend Turgeon and say, oh, come on, people. You know, you, 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 things could be so much worse. Okay. Just appreciate what we have. No. In sports, as is the case in life, you should always strive for excellence and you're nowhere near excellence right now. You know, you're, you have competence, which is not something to take for granted, but it's not what this Maryland basketball program is capable of. What do we talk about on the podcast on Monday regarding Maryland Bama? The opportunity that was this Maryland-Alabama game. Yes, of course, Maryland wasn't expected to win. Yes, of course, Maryland was a sizable underdog for this game on Monday night. But that doesn't mean that Maryland couldn't win. That that didn't mean that we shouldn't, as Maryland fans have looked at this game as, okay, let's knock off the beast. Let's slay the dragon. And let's get to the Sweet 16 for just the second time since 2003. That was another thing Gary used to do. He used to pull off upsets. He was a giant killer, okay? Gary routinely beat number one teams. It happened all the time back in the day. Turgeon's teams uh, barely could beat a ranked team up until just a few seasons ago. And the fact that there was just this like acceptance of this loss on Monday night, that's as big a part of the problem as anything. No, Maryland wasn't supposed to beat Alabama. That didn't mean that Maryland couldn't have beaten Alabama. And that doesn't mean that you should just swallow and accept Maryland having lost to Alabama. The program is better than this, and it's time to get back to being better than this, whether it's with Turgeon or without him. Our special guest, John Sheeran, co-host of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast, going to tell us all we need to know about William Jackson III. That's coming up in just a bit. But I did want to address something that was out there on Monday, and that was what Ryan Fitzpatrick had to say regarding why he chose to sign with the Washington football team. So Fitzpatrick was on the Ross Tucker football podcast. Tucker himself, by the way, a former Washington football team player, uh, was with the team in the days of uh, Marty Schottenheimer and Steve Spurrier about 20 seasons ago. Wasn't with the team long, but he was with the team. He told some great Spurrier stories over the years. But anyway, here was Fitzpatrick with Tucker on why Fitzpatrick chose to sign with Washington. Well, I mean, you know, everybody has all the things they want to paint and make it beautiful. Uh, I mean, money is always a factor. I mean, it's always, you know, I, I think for me at this point in my career, that part of it is more... A respect thing, uh, just in terms of sizing yourself up versus other guys around the league and what they're getting. Um, I was really excited about Coach Rivera. I think I've heard so many great things about him and just getting a chance to sit down with him when I was out there the other day and talk. Uh, you can you can tell early on that he's going to command the room, that he's got the respect of the team and all his peers, and uh, that was exciting for me. And then opportunity to play. I mean, I wanted the goal number one for me was to find a place where I would have an opportunity to go out there and compete and play. And this is a team that fit that. And it also fit the fact that, you know, they're in the playoffs last year at, at seven and nine, but they are a young team. Uh, the team I just came from was very young. And 
I feel like I had a, a big part in kind of bringing them along, and I'm really excited to try to do the same thing here for Washington. All right, so some good stuff there from Ryan Fitzpatrick on the Ross Tucker Football Podcast, and a few things I want to react to off what Fitzpatrick had to say. So number one, I do appreciate the honesty from Fitzpatrick in saying uh, money is always a factor. Of course it is. You know, like when guys get asked, so why did you choose to sign with this team? And they say, well, I really love this guy, and I really like that guy, and this really stood out to me, and that really appealed to me. It's like, no, money is always a thing. And for most guys, it is the thing. And that's okay. It's it, it's all right to say that. Uh, when he admits that, yeah, money was an, uh, an issue, a factor, I think that's perfectly fine. Uh, understand the contract that Washington gave to Fitzpatrick, it is a very reasonable deal. It's not some overwhelming contract. It's a one-year $10 million deal with a maximum value of $12 million. But the devil, as is always the case with these NFL contracts, in the details, it's a mere $3 million base salary, a $6 million signing bonus, uh, $1 million in per game roster bonuses, $2 million in incentives. So even if he ends up getting, let's say he got every incentive, okay? It's still only $12 million for one year. In today's quarterback market, where the really good ones are making in excess of $30 million per year, and even like the halfway decent ones are getting $20 plus million per year, you at worst have to pay Ryan Fitzpatrick $12 million for this one season. A Ryan Fitzpatrick who has been top 10 in the NFL and ESPN's total QBR each of the last two years. Like that to me is a very reasonable team-friendly contract. You know, put aside for the moment what you think about, okay, Fitzpatrick's older and he's not going to be a long-term fix at quarterback. Just like looking at the contract within the confines of the 2021 season, that's a good contract that Washington gave to Ryan Fitzpatrick. And I think it looks even better when you do the compare and contrast with other similar quarterbacks or at least similarly perceived quarterbacks and what they've gotten this offseason. Andy Dalton getting a one-year $10 million deal with a max value of $13 million from the Chicago Bears. I mean, you tell me, would you rather have Fitzpatrick or Dalton at one-year $10 million? And Dalton's deal actually can be uh, more expensive than Fitzpatrick's, right? Max value of $13 million for Dalton max value of $12 million for Fitzpatrick. You know, Tyrod Taylor with the Houston Texans, one-year deal worth up to $12.5 million. Again, his max value is actually higher than Fitzpatrick's. I'd much rather have Fitzpatrick right now than either Dalton or Taylor on a one-year contract. So the money admission from Fitzpatrick stood out. I thought it was also interesting that Fitzpatrick did bring up Ron Rivera as a factor for signing with Washington. And look, I understand maybe that's just something that Fitzpatrick says. He understands who the boss is. He understands who the head of the family is right now. Don Ron, Coach Rivera in the coach-centric approach. I get that. But he's not the first guy to say something like this. Quote, I've heard so many great things about him and just getting a chance to sit down with him when I was out there the other day and talk, you can tell early on that he's going to command the room, that he's got the respect of the team and all his peers. That was exciting for me. End quote. There's no doubt Ron Rivera is revered around the NFL. Uh, he has about as high of an approval rating around the league as anybody. It, it, it's been one of the really odd juxtapositions with the Washington football team over the last 12 months that while you have maybe the single most despised person in the league in the Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving to everybody. Yes, thank you, Dan Snyder. Appreciate that. While you have him, you also have had two of the most popular and well-regarded people in the NFL in Ron Rivera and Alex Smith. I mean, it just, it's, it's been such an odd push-pull scenario with that dynamic 
over the last 12 months. On the one hand, the Danny. First off, happy Thanksgiving, everybody. Yes, thank you, Danny. But on the other hand, Ron and Alex. So I, I do think that there is something to what Fitzpatrick said there about Rivera, the appeal of Rivera, a very respected coach, a guy who, of course, battled cancer this past season in leading a Washington team to a 7-9 and nine mark. And yes, a very weak NFC East, understood. But still, a Washington team that was 1-5, and five, finished 7-9. and nine. A Washington team that went 3-13 and 13 in 2019, finished 7-9. and nine. Like, a lot of people really like Ron Rivera. I do think that works in Washington's favor when it comes to trying to get guys to want to come here. But I think the most notable thing in this answer from Fitzpatrick to Tucker had to do with the opportunity to play. Fitzpatrick, quote, goal number one for me was to find a place where I would have an opportunity to go out there and compete and play. This was a team that fit that, and it also fit the fact that they were in the playoffs last year at 7-9, and nine, but they are a young team. The team I just came from was very young, and I feel like I had a big part in kind of bringing them along, and I'm really excited to try to do the same thing here for Washington, end quote. There's no doubt, Ryan Fitzpatrick sees what Washington has at quarterback and believes very much so that he'll prove to be the best option for Washington at quarterback. And that may well be the case. I do wonder very much, though, if what I want, and I know what many of you want, is going to happen. And that is a true, open, good faith, honest quarterback competition. Okay? As things stand now, Ryan Fitzpatrick versus Taylor Heineke versus Kyle Allen. Could that change? Sure. Maybe the rise of Steven Montez happens and Montez becomes a factor. Maybe Washington drafts a quarterback, maybe even as early as in the first round. These things are all possible, okay? I, I think they're uh, unlikely, especially Washington, uh, I mean, you know, the Montez thing, whatever, but especially Washington drafting a quarterback in the first round. I think signing Fitzpatrick made that less likely, but it doesn't render that impossible. That is true. But whoever is a part of your quarterback mix, I don't want anyone being handed anything for 2021. I do wonder what Fitzpatrick has been told, though, about this. Was he just told, yeah, look, we're going to say competition, but you're going to be the guy. Was he told, no, there's going to be a legit competition. May the best man win. I hope the latter is the case, but we do not know that. Fitzpatrick, remember, was not asked this during his lengthy introductory Zoom press conference last week. Now, remember what was reported two Monday nights ago. ESPN NFL insider Adam Schefter on that Monday night on which the Fitzpatrick news broke of him agreeing on a deal with Washington, reported that Fitzpatrick was expected to head to Washington's training camp as the starter with competition from Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. So the way Schefter framed it was Fitzpatrick begins as the QB1, but there will be competition from Heineke and Allen. Maybe this is all just semantics. Like I said, it may well be that Ron has told Ryan, you're the guy, forget about what I say publicly. I hope that's not the case. It very much, though, could be the case. You do wonder if Fitzpatrick, a reason, maybe the biggest reason he signed with Washington is that he was told this is going to be your job. Because if I'm Ryan Fitzpatrick, I look back at the 2020 season and I see how well I played and how well I did for a Miami Dolphins team that ended up 10 and 6. And I say to myself, I got benched for Tua Tungavailoa, not for performance reasons, but just for draft reasons, i.e. the Dolphins wanted to see what they had in Tua, even with Fitzpatrick doing a really good job. Tua struggled, and Fitzpatrick ended up being the starter again later in the season because Tua got benched. Uh, and, I, and I bet Fitzpatrick looks at things and says, okay, what should have been the case in Miami, me remaining as the QB1, 
can be the case here in Washington, which had woeful quarterback play for so much of the 2020 season. I I think 100% that's what Fitzpatrick is thinking. Whether he's been told he's going to be the starting quarterback or not, he believes that he will be the starting quarterback. He believes in himself. He certainly made that clear during his introductory Zoom press conference. And I think he looks at Heineke and Allen and whoever else potentially may be a part of this and says, all right, whatever, I can beat out those guys. I've been legitimately one of the better quarterbacks in the NFL over the last few seasons. And he has one more time, top 10 in total QBR each of the last two years. I mean, that's a really impressive thing to be able to say about a guy. Now, you can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. I got this email from one of my favorites, Sabah. Sabah wrote me. She said, I believe the Fitzpatrick signing doesn't mean Ron does not believe in Heineke slash Allen. Instead, Fitz signing confirms that Ron believes Heineke slash Allen may be the answer at QB or at least deserve the opportunity to be the guy. And signing Fitzpatrick makes this possible because Fitz is the perfect insurance policy in case Heineke slash Allen fail or get injured. He is a better version of Alex Smith, parentheses, can actually move around. All Fitz signing has done is elevate the floor of the Skins QB room. That's a very interesting theory. And I have to say, Sabah, I had not considered that, that maybe this actually speaks well for Heineke slash Allen. Maybe this is actually an endorsement of Heineke slash Allen. It could be. It could be. Washington needed to bring in a third quarterback to the Heineke-Allen mix, regardless of how Ron truly felt about Heineke and Allen, because each guy is still very unproven, and each guy has a significant injury history, right? I mean, Kyle Allen is coming off the dislocated left ankle and reported small fracture. And Heineke, as awesome as he was in that playoff loss to Tampa Bay, has been banged up already a bunch. 2017, he made his NFL debut in a week 16 relief outing for the Houston Texans, suffered a concussion. 2018, he made his first NFL regular season start in week 16, suffered a season-ending left elbow injury. And in a playoff game against the Bucs, right, Heineke suffering that AC joint separation in the left shoulder on the spectacular, all-time great, third quarter, third and five, eight-yard scramble touchdown run. And of course, he remained in the game and ended up throwing a great touchdown pass to Steven Sims. But Heineke has been banged up already quite a bit in his limited time in the NFL. Uh, Washington lists Heineke as being 6-1-2-10. He seems to perhaps be smaller than that. And you do wonder about the body being able to hold up. So even if you love Taylor Heineke or you love Kyle Allen, or maybe you love both, You had to bring in somebody else, a viable option here, a guy who you felt like if he has to play because the other two can't play either due to bad performance or injury, you're not lost. You're not going to be lost if Ryan Fitzpatrick ends up playing. Do I wish the third option, do I wish the third guy brought into the mix here was younger and could be more of a long-term fixture? Yes, but especially with the way things are going at quarterback these days, You can play well, as we know, deep into your 30s, if not your 40s. Now, I know it's like, okay, Brady, Breeze, or Fitzpatrick in that class, no, but he's been really good the last two years. One more time, top 10 in total QBR each of the last two seasons. So the notion of Fitzpatrick being good for another two, maybe even three years, uh, isn't that far-fetched. Like, it's not nuts to suggest something like that. But you needed another viable option. You certainly have that here in Ryan Fitzpatrick. I do think it's fascinating to wonder what has he been told about what the approach at quarterback is going to be for 2021. And I'll cap it off by saying this, no matter what he's been told, 
or what you think or what I think or what Ron thinks or what Ryan thinks or anybody else. One of the real lessons of what happened for Washington at quarterback in 2020 is what you think the plan is or what you think the scenario will end up being can end up being very different from what ends up happening. A year ago at this time, it was all about Dwayne Haskins. Kyle Allen was brought in as the quote-unquote very competitive competition. Nobody bought that Allen was going to end up being the starter to begin the season. You know, little did we know how things would play out between those two. But a year ago at this time, it really was all about Dwayne Haskins. Kyle Allen was the chuckle, very competitive competition. And Alex Smith was viewed as a non-factor, right? Well, we all know what ended up happening in the season. We went from Haskins to Allen to Alex, back to Haskins, back to Alex, then to Heineke. And we all know what we think about all those guys now as compared to how they were viewed going into the season. So wherever you're at on the quarterback situation, no matter what you think, understand that that thinking can very much change. And so even if Ron is locked in on Fitzpatrick, that's for now. We'll see what transpires September through December. And that's why I'm dismissing neither Heineke nor Allen from Washington's quarterback situation for this next season. All right, very pleased to welcome the Al Galdi podcast right now. John Sheeran, co-host of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. And you can read his work on CincyJungle.com, which is the SB Nation blog for the Cincinnati Bengals. John, it's great to have you on, man. How are you? I'm good, Al. Um, thanks for having me on. I appreciate you coming on. So it's, of course, one thing for us as Washington football team fans to have watched William Jackson the third at times and, you know, to be able to look up the stats and read about him. But you don't truly know a player until he's on your team. You follow him on a day-in, day-out basis, season-in, season-out basis. What would you say that Washington is getting in William Jackson the third? I think they're getting a very solid cornerback. Um, William Jackson was a first-round pick back in 2016, and he was highly regarded as a cornerback with ample ball skills and plus athleticism. And I think for the most part, both those things ring true five or six years into his career. With the Bengals, he was always an above average player aside from a couple, you know, mishaps here and there. And I believe 2019 wasn't that great of a season for him, but I think he leaves the Bengals still as a very solid player and a player that was very much worth the contract that the Washington football team gave him uh, this offseason. Yes, I want to get your reaction to that contract. Three years, $40.5 million, $21 million guaranteed at signing. Did you find that to be appropriate money for Jackson, a bit of an overpay, maybe an underpay? What would you make of that? I thought it was around where he should have been. Um, There's a couple of factors that I guess were kind of working against him. He never really had a season that quite matched what he did back in 2017 when he was like the golden boy for pro football focus, and he allowed like a 36 pass rating when targeted to him. He was never that good in the three seasons three seasons since then. But, again, he's still an above-average cornerback, and cornerbacks do get paid, especially good ones like William Jackson. So that was around, I think, where a lot of Bengals fans expected him to get the guaranteed money. It was maybe a little bit high for what they expected because of his pedigree and the fact that he might be a little bit on the older side for a guy entering free agency for the first time. But still, again, really talented, and that's kind of what you have to pay for cornerbacks nowadays. Yeah, there's no question about that. So you mentioned what has been the best season of his career, 2017, a a season from the heavens from a pro football focus standpoint, as you referenced. What can you tell us about that 2017 season? I mean, was he legit a shutdown corner that year? Did you guys in Cincy feel like, hey, William Jackson is legit, you know, he is an elite level corner based on how he did in 2017? 
So it was definitely incredible. Um, you, have, you have to remember that that was his, the first year that he played, but it was not his first year in the league. He lost his entire uh, rookie season in 2016. He, he was already a, a year into the league, but this was his first year playing. It was also on the older side. So he was 23 when he was drafting. He turned 24 in 2016. So he was 24, 25 years old when he was on the field in 2017. So he was already on the older side for a young player, but, you know, he was already well-developed as an athlete, you know, you know physically in, in all that sense. So, you know, it was it was definitely surprising because that was still his first time out there. But, you know, it, it, it was, like, I don't know if you want to call him, like, a true shutdown that year. Like, he had a great production when the ball was targeted his way. But I think there were still some things that he could have improved upon. It just happened to be, like, you know, he, like, just, he just wouldn't allow completions. It was it was it was crazy, and I think that was unfortunate for him because that set almost like an unfair expectation for what Bengals fans expected going forward with him. He never again. He never quite really reset again because the, the bar was raised so high. But I think um, after that, he still saw a solid player. So 2017, yeah, if you want to call it a shutdown season, I, I think that that's very because the production and the stats definitely back that up. But there were still some things to improve upon that maybe he never really quite developed as much, but that was definitely a season that, you know, Bengals fans still remember and a lot of people around the NFL still remember as well. Yeah, no doubt. So he was great in 2017. He was solid in 18. And then, like you said, his worst season was that 2019 season. Now, it was interesting with Jackson. He did a uh, an intro Zoom press conference for the Washington football team on Friday. He said he dealt with a torn labrum for all of that season. I guess what I'd like to know is this, like, how bad was that Jackson 2019 season? Like, was he really bad? You know, was he just kind of so-so? Like, if 2017 is the ceiling, how low is the floor that was that 2019 season? The floor is definitely not as low as the ceiling was high. I'll, I'll say that much. He definitely looked like he was playing injured. And if, and if I remember correctly, he did miss a couple of games during that season when he was dealing with, with injuries. And you, like, you could tell that something was kind of plaguing and bothering him. Like Jackson's issues have always been, you know, he's a little bit susceptible to double moves and stuff. So he's not as good of an off cover corner as he is when he's locking on man to man with a lot of guys. And unfortunately that was 2019 was the first year that Lou Inarumo was coordinated, the coordinating the Bengals defense. So there was a shift in defensive scheme and philosophy that year. And it didn't really mesh well with what Jackson did his best. I'm not saying that he's a bad zone cover corner by any means, but it's not, not necessarily where you're maximizing what his strengths were. So he took a long time to kind of acclimate himself in the new system. And unfortunately, the injuries kind of tacked that on. But it, it wasn't by any sense like a, like a bad year. Like he was still like a, a starting caliber cornerback. It was just he was a little exposed at, at times. And you could definitely tell that he was dealing with some problems with his injury. And you just hit on something that's actually come up quite a bit here already, and that is this issue of man coverage versus zone coverage. And Jackson, is he best suited for man? And if Washington plays a lot of zone in 21, as Washington did in 20, what is that going to mean for William Jackson? But the way you framed it is kind of what I've kind of gathered. He's probably better in man, but it's not like he's, you know, putrid in zone. No, if he was putrid in zone, he wouldn't be able to command as much money as he did in the market. If you're that limit of a player then you don't have the market that William Jackson did. Um, again, I, I think he's solid regardless of what you ask him to do. You just might see a little bit more of the bad plays with him if he's not strictly in man-to-man coverage because he, he is a, a solid athlete for sticking with guys and, and cutting down on their breaks. It's just that when you play more in space and guys can kind of get, get behind him, I guess, and you know, d- double moves seem to be effective with, with him from time to time. And also, like the lack of ball production as well, is, is something that doesn't really, really bode well in his favor when you're entering 
him in schemes like that. But again, you know, if you're playing him in zone, it's not like he's going to be a, a straight up liability. He's still going to be a solid guy. It's just that discrepancy in the context behind it. It's a little bit, I, I would say, I would say it's just important to remember that. We're talking William Jackson the third with John Sheeran, co-host of the Orange and Black Insider Bengals podcast. And you can read his work on CincyJungle.com, which is the SB Nation blog for the Cincinnati Bengals. So we all know football is a dependent sport. Uh, William Jackson the third, I know he was not on a bunch of like great Bengals teams. But in terms of those Cincinnati defenses that Jackson was a part of, were those all just really bad defenses and Jackson was like the lone shining star? Did, did he have more help than maybe people realize? Well, what kind of like a defensive environment was Jackson a part of over these last four years? The last three, two, three years specifically were not very good defenses with the Bengals. He was definitely one of the two or three best players on that defense. And as you can imagine, if you're not surrounded by enough competent talent or maybe your defensive coordinator is not as qualified as you'd like him to be, there are going to be times where he himself looks like he's to blame for stuff that went wrong. But that was, that was never really rarely the case. If things bad, if bad things happened to the Bengals defense, it was very rarely William Jackson's fault. There were a couple of coverage mishaps and whatnot. Communication was a huge issue that a lot of, you know, reporters and even members of the team claimed was an issue back in 2019, that first year that Andrew Rumo took over. And that was the year that we mentioned with William Jackson as well. So communication was a huge issue back in 2019. They got some of that fixed up and, and working a little bit better in 2020, but unfortunately injuries, you know, plagued that team again in 2020. And that's why the defense still was near the bottom of the league. But even when the Bengals struggled, struggled, it was rarely William Jackson's fault. He was still remained, albeit a little bit of an inconsistent, but still a solid starter in that defense. And again, like there, there were some times where he struggled with double moves and whatnot, but I think for the most part, no, no matter who he faced, he was doing a damn well solid job of covering his target and rarely was he picked on as like a known liability. And Bengals fans are very much aware that like they had Tricker Patrick there for five or six years and he was nowhere near the player that William Jackson was. He was one of the better cornerbacks the Bengals have had over the last 15 years. And that includes Leon Hall and Jonathan Joseph. And like, I mean, there's, there's a reason why Washington's paying that money because he is worth it. Did the Bengals want to resign Jackson? Did they try truly to resign Jackson? And if not, why not? I believe that 2019 was like the beginning of the fallout that it, it was never publicized, but it was definitely heavily speculated. Like uh, in the 2020 offseason, the Bengals went out and signed Trey Waynes to a deal that no one expected that to happen. But there was some writing on the wall entering that offseason that it, it was just a sense that Jackson didn't necessarily want to be there, and that the coaching staff didn't think that he was that great of a fit. And once they paid Waynes that money, it, it kind of wrote the writing on the wall that Jackson's time in Cincinnati was about to be up. And no matter how good or bad that he did in the 2020 season, it didn't seem like he was ever going to come back. And that's not an excuse for the Bengals to let him walk for that money. It was just, it, it just seemed de- destined that, that the partnership and the relationship would be, be kind of severed at, at that point. You know, they, they paid Waynes that money to be their number one cornerback and they were not going to pay uh, William Jackson that money. They were only going to bring him back if for some reason he just didn't have a market at all and he needed a place to rebound on like a one-year deal. That was like the one scenario that I, I truly believe that William Jackson was going to be back. I think that he was going to be on another team. It was going to be on the contract that we kind of all expected. And that's just kind of how it happened. Did you as a Bengals fan want Cincinnati to resign Jackson or were you good with Cincy letting him go? 
I think the smart option would have been to extend him before the 2020 season in case he had a season like like he did where he improved off of 2019. But again, it, it just didn't seem to be in the best interest for either party. It seemed like William wanted a fresh start somewhere else. And I think at this point, Zach Taylor and his staff wanted new personnel and a guy that, that they brought in because Jackson was one of those last first round picks under the Marvin Lewis era. And again, I think he was still a solid player and a, and a good draft pick for the time. But it, it just didn't seem like the two sides really wanted to mesh. And I thought still, from a personnel standpoint, it would have been wise to invest in Jackson because I think he's still a better cornerback than Trey Waynes, and they're paying Trey Waynes all that money. So that might have been a, a mistake on their part and maybe a misevaluation. But if the relationship, if it, if it, was, if it wasn't going to be mended, then there's no sense in throwing all that money into a guy that maybe didn't want to be here. Is Jackson a good dude? Were there ever any behind-the-scenes problems with him? I never heard anything like that. I don't think he was that like vocal in, in the locker room and didn't generate a lot of sound bites with reporters. Obviously the last year we, there was no access with that. So we really don't have a, have a good gauge on, on what guys did and said last year, but I never thought of him as a guy who you know caused any trouble or, or created any uh, dra- drama within the locker room. I thought he was just more of a quiet guy. And you know, it, it's, it's honestly, it, it's interesting that you asked that question because now the more I think about it, the more of an enigma, I guess he really was in Cincinnati. We, we just always knew him as a quality player who just didn't really say that much. So it'll be interesting to see if he kind of lets his personality loose in Washington now. Uh, final moments here. Uh, so while I have you, uh, Washington, of course, has signed Ryan Fitzpatrick. And one of the other veteran quarterbacks whose name came up this offseason as a potential fit for Washington was a guy who you, of course, know well in Andy Dalton. Uh, I don't know how much of him you got to watch last season, but you obviously watched Dalton for years with Cincy. He signed with Chicago. It's sounding like he's going to be the Bears starter. I'm just curious, is Dalton done, or do you think he still has some quality play left in him? It depends on what you mean by quality play, I guess. Like, we can point to the box scores and say, yeah, he's going to throw for, like, 20-some touchdowns, keep it under 16 interceptions and call it a day. But, that, like, where does that really get you? you know? yeah. Like, with Dalton, you're kind of accepting that, you know, you just want something stable, but nothing that's really going to – get you serious and competing for anything, especially if the supporting cast isn't great. I think with Washington, you know, Washington has a great young offensive court kind of building around Ryan Fitzpatrick now. Maybe he would have been able to make some noise and generate some wins in Washington. But if you're accepting Indy Dolan, you're just unfortunately accepting mediocrity. And that's what a lot, a lot of bands, a lot of Bengals fans kind of realized towards the late 2010s and saying, yeah, this guy is good enough to keep his job, but he's not good enough to really elevate you to a place where you want to be. And that's ultimately why they moved on and took Joe Burrow. So I think any team that avoids signing any Dalton is, is a team that's as is looking for more from their quarterback position. Yeah. It's that uh, no man's land that no team wants to be a part right. of. John, excellent perspective, man. Really appreciate your time. All the best. Yeah. Thank you, man. All right, so let's talk some Nationals now, and no exhibition game for the Nationals on Monday. So I thought this Tuesday installment of the Al Goldie podcast would be a good opportunity to talk about some of those position players who've done quite well so far in these exhibition games. And we all know spring training games, you can't take too much meaning from them, but that doesn't mean that they are totally meaningless. And specific to a couple of Nats who the team needs to be good in 2021, I think it's worth noting what's going on here. So let's start with Victor Robles, who the Nats clearly need to blossom offensively in 2021. The Nats need Robles to get back to being great defensively as he was in 2019, but the Nats also need Victor Robles to take a step forward offensively. Victor Robles so far, 40 plate appearances over 13 exhibition games. 
He's got a batting average of 286, an on-base percentage of 375, a slugging percentage of 629. Those numbers are outstanding. Robles has been a staple in that number one spot, in the leadoff spot. He's been getting on base. He's been hitting for power. Robles last season was brutal as a batter. 220 batting average, 293 on base, 315 slugging. Not good. Nowhere close enough to being good. He's looked great so far. And, you know, he's not just doing the thing that he's done for years where, you know, he's getting hit by a bunch of pitches and that's how he's getting on base. He's drawing walks. Like I said, he's he's hitting for some power, which we all thought Robles could do when he came to the major league level. And he's looked the part. He's looked every bit the part that you want a leadoff batter to look. This Nationals lineup is made so much better if Victor Robles can thrive in that leadoff spot. Because truth be told, if Robles can't get the job done, I'm not sure who you turn to, okay? This lineup is made with Robles thriving in the leadoff spot, Juan Soto as the best hitter on the team in the number two spot, and Trey Turner as the second best batter on the team in the number three spot. If Robles is legit, that's a very potent one, two, three to get things going offensively. Robles one, Soto two, Turner three. But what's going to make that go is Robles being good in that number one spot. You trust Soto, you trust Turner, you need Robles to blossom. Uh, He has not been good offensively over these last two seasons. If Robles can take that next step forward here offensively in 2020, that is huge for the Nationals. And one more thing on Robles. So he, on Friday evening, a 10-9 Grapefruit League win over the Houston Astros, left the game due to back tightness, but he ended up being back playing just a couple of days later. So good news there. You know, the back ended up not being much of an issue. Oh, by the way, Robles in that game on Friday evening, a solo homer and a double. Again, he's been really good so far this exhibition season. The other guy who's been really good so far for the Nationals is Josh Bell. Josh Bell, 39 plate appearances, 13 games, batting average of 375, on base percentage of 462, slugging percentage of 875. Outstanding numbers. That's, of course, traded for Josh Bell, got him for the Pittsburgh Pirates on Christmas Eve of last year. Uh, Bell is a guy who was good over his first three major league seasons, 2016 through 2018, then was outstanding in 2019, but then had a woeful 2020 season uh, with the Pittsburgh Pirates, slash just 226, 305, 364. Now, Bell has said the bad 2020 was due to the short summer training off the COVID-19 induced shutdown, also was due to some swing mechanics issues. So the notion of Josh Bell getting back to where he was at offensively, you know, at the very least from 16 to 18, if not in 2019, isn't that far-fetched, but you don't know until you know. You know, the Nats lineup this season is relying on two guys to blossom offensively in Victor Robles and Carter Keeboom. And the lineup is relying on two guys to bounce back off bad 2020s in Bell and Kyle Schwarber. And the fact that Robles has taken this step forward, the fact that Bell has looked good so far, very encouraging. Does it guarantee anything? Of course not. But if the Nats are going to be a good ball club in 2021, of those four offensive wild cards to me, you need at least two, probably three to pan out, okay? You're not going to hit on all four, but especially if Robles and Keeboom can take those next steps forward, because there's a longer-term thing with Robles and Keeboom, right? Two highly touted prospects who the Nats really do want to pan out. If Schwarber doesn't work out, if Bell doesn't work out, it's not the end of the world. Like, especially with Schwarber, who's here on a one-year deal. Like, yes, you'd like for him as your everyday left field to get back to where he's been at in the past offensively. But if he doesn't, you know, you can live with that. But Robles, Keeboom, Bell, especially, you'd love for those three guys to end up working out for the Nats, especially Robles and Keeboom, so that they can be fixtures for the Nationals 
for years to come. Now, there is another guy who's done quite well so far for the Nats in terms of position players in these exhibition games, and that is Yadiel Hernandez. Are you familiar with Yadiel Hernandez? Very interesting story. The Nats signed him, he's a Cuban, uh, to a minor league deal in September 2016. He doesn't get called up to the majors until last September. His age 32 season is when Hernandez gets called up. Uh, he actually at one point hit a one-out, two-run walk-off homer in the bottom of the eighth of a win over the Philadelphia Phillies at Nationals Park in game two of a doubleheader in late September of last season. Ended up not really doing all that well, but I mean, he only had 28 plate appearances, so you really can't read too much into that. But anyway, he's going into his age 33 season, and old Yadiel has been terrific so far. In fact, he leads the Nats in hits in this exhibition season. Yadiel Hernandez, over 30 Grapefruit League plate appearances, a batting average of 500, an on-base percentage of 533, a slugging percentage of 731. And the question that now has come up is, is Yadiel Hernandez setting himself up to be the Nationals' fourth outfielder? You know what the situation is going to be from left to right. Kyle Schwarber, Victor Robles, Juan Soto. The conventional thinking had been that Andrew Stevenson was going to be the Nats' fourth outfielder. And Andrew Stevenson himself is an interesting story. 2015 second-round pick out of LSU, going into his age 27 season. He, over limited time over these last two regular seasons, has actually done really well. Uh, just 84 plate appearances, but a 366 batting average, 464 on base, 620 slugging, has benefited from insanely high BABIPs, batting averages on balls in play. But this is a guy who can run. So the high BABIPs may not just be a function of good luck. Uh, they may also be a function of the guy being able to motor. And so when he put puts balls in play, the guy can end up finding himself on at first base. But anyway, the thinking had been that Stevenson would be the guy. Again, he's looked good the last two years. He is fast. He is defensively diverse. Like you can use him in center and in both corner outfield spots. The concern with Yadiel Hernandez would be the age, not as fast as Stevenson. And if you ever have to put Yadiel Hernandez in center field, uh, close your eyes, okay? Because that's probably not going to work out all that well. So I still would think that Andrew Stevenson has the inside track on being the Nats' fourth outfielder. But at the very least, Yadiel Hernandez is making things interesting. As for the Orioles, they did have an exhibition game on Monday, a 6-5 loss to the Pittsburgh Pirates on Monday afternoon. John Means making his fourth start of the exhibition season of having been named on Friday as the uh, Orioles 2021 Opening day starter by manager Brandon Hyde. I mean, struggling on Monday for whatever that's worth here. Three runs in three and two-thirds innings. Gave up four hits, a double and three singles, and three walks versus three strikeouts. Threw just 53 of his 82 pitches for strikes. But as we keep saying, you can't take too much from these exhibition games. What I really wanted to get into, though, with you here regarding the O's is what Hyde had to say regarding Chris Davis. So Chris Davis strained his lower back in the Orioles' first game of this exhibition season. He has not played in a game since. And Hyde on Monday said that the O's are considering beginning the regular season with Davis not just on an injured list, but on the 60-day injured list, meaning that he wouldn't make his regular season debut until at least the end of May. Now, I am not a doctor. I do not know the severity of the Davis injury. I have not examined Chris Davis's back, okay? But you are naive, and you're not paying attention if you're not at least wondering about this back injury. 
gets hurt in the first exhibition game, hasn't played since, and now Hyde is saying, yeah, 60-day IL to begin the season, potentially, for Chris Davis. Bury him until at least the end of May. You got to wonder, is the guy truly ailing? Or did the team and the guy come up with this to say, all right, this is what we're going to do because we're not interested in you playing for us much, if at all, in 2021? Like, you have to wonder, don't you? I'm not saying they phonied up this injury. Maybe he's got an injury and they're just making it seem worse than it is. Maybe he's legitimately dealing with this lower back strain and that's legitimately why he hasn't played since the first exhibition game and this is such that the O's do need to put him on the 60-day IL. I don't know, okay? But you gotta wonder and if you're paying attention, you are wondering. Chris Davis is going into his age 35 season. He is going into the next to last year of his debacle of a contract. The Orioles in January 2016 re-signed Davis to a seven-year 161 million dollar deal. And let me say, I was in favor of the Orioles doing this. I am not going to be a fake. I am not going to be a phony. I endorsed the Orioles doing this. I endorsed the Orioles re-signing Chris Davis. They had let Nelson Cruz go the previous offseason. That proved to be a mistake, although in the moment it didn't look that nuts because Nelson Cruz was older. But my God, the guys continued to just kill it ever since then, and for multiple teams, not just the Seattle Mariners, but now the Minnesota Twins. You know, you think about this. What if the O's had re-signed Nelson Cruz and not re-signed Chris Davis? Boy, did they make the wrong call there. Not re-signing Cruz, but re-signing Davis. But anyway, Chris Davis had been a force for the O's for multiple seasons, 2012 through 2015. Chris Davis was awesome. He, over those four seasons, had a 256 batting average, a 342 on base percentage, a 533 slugging percentage. Chris Davis led the majors in homers in 2013 with 53, led the majors in homers in 2015 with 47. If you look at Davis through the prism of wins above replacement, we'll use the baseball reference version. Chris Davis in 2013 had a 7.1 war. That's MVP caliber. Davis in 2015, a 4.9 war. That's terrific. And Chris Davis was versatile defensively. Chris Davis was not some, you know, overweight lumbering slugger who could only play first base. Chris Davis played first base, played third base, played right field, played left field. So I looked at Davis. I said, hey, this guy has been a great batter. This guy is athletic enough to play third base and also the corner outfield spots. He's been a major producer for the Orioles for multiple seasons now. Get the guy re-signed. And when I saw the terms of the contract, seven years, $161 million, I said, well, that is a long time. But, you know, 161 in baseball, that's really not that much. You know, it's not nothing, clearly, but plenty of guys get 200 plus million dollars. You got Davis at 161 million dollars. Well, Chris Davis was extremely mediocre over the first two seasons of that contract, 2016 and 2017. And these last three seasons, he has been the single worst player in baseball. He's been a complete embarrassment. There's no other way to put it. And I say that not trying to like attack the guy. It's actually a part of me, a part of me. Uh, that feels sorry for the guy. Now, I, you know, you can't feel too sorry for a guy getting $161 million over seven years, even with some of that money deferred. But, you know, he has just been lampooned. Chris Davis has been. He has been atrocious over these last three years. Chris Davis, over the last three seasons, a 169 batting average, a 251 on base percentage, a 299 slugging percentage. Those numbers are god awful, okay? One of the stats you'll hear me use is OPS plus, which is OPS on base percentage plus slugging percentage. 
adjusted for a player's home ballpark and his league. A hundred is average. It's a great way of normalizing things because obviously different ballparks have different impacts on guys hitting. And also it's very difficult to compare somebody in today's game versus somebody in baseball, say 50 years ago. So OPS plus helps you to normalize all that. So basically a hundred is average. Above a hundred is good. Below a hundred is bad. Chris Davis's OPS plus over the last three years, 2018 through 2020, is 50. 50! He has been half of a league average batter, Chris Davis has been, over the last three years. Chris Davis, in terms of war over the last three seasons, a cumulative B-war, a cumulative war per baseball reference of minus 5.7, okay? Remember, a zero war is the level of a replacement player. Chris Davis has been minus 5.7 in terms of his war over the last three seasons. He has been substantially below a replacement level player, Davis has been, over the last three years. And you know, at times things have gotten ugly in this Chris Davis situation. Do you remember what happened in 2018? This never gets talked about a lot. So on May 23rd, 2018, the Orioles had an 11-1 loss at the Chicago White Sox. And it was after that game that Jim Palmer on Masson sounded off in a manner in which you almost never see team broadcasters sound off. This is why Jim Palmer is so great, because he tells it like it is, and he doesn't care what other people think. He's not worried about getting fired like so many other people are in broadcasting. Chris Davis got smashed by Jim Palmer. Palmer questioned Davis's work ethic, essentially called him a phony during the O's Extra postgame show. Palmer's comments had to do with Davis not having worked all that much with the Orioles hitting coach at the time, Scott Coolball. Uh, those comments from Palmer ended up being backed up by Coolball the following day. Not a single person who covered the O's spoke or wrote about Davis the way that Palmer spoke about Davis on that night. And it was, A, of course, supremely refreshing, but you expect nothing less from the great Jim Palmer. But B, it was revealing because this stuff that had been out there of, oh, Davis had put in this extra time with Coolball, and Davis is trying to work to get himself back to where he's been in seasons past. And Palmer called Davis out and said, that's not true. I talked to Coolball. He told me that's BS. And Coolball, again, backed that up the following day. Now, things calmed down beyond that, but that has stuck with me about this Chris Davis thing, that it's not just that he has struggled you know, there's been stuff about him using Adderall and maybe like that's had an impact whether, you know, I, I don't know whether he still uses it or not, but when he wasn't allowed to use it because you need an exemption to use it, there was a thinking that that was why the guy wasn't doing well. You know, whether he's still on it or not, I do not know. But, you know, this thing of, well, he's working hard to get back to where he's been, not according to Palmer three years ago. You know, so like I said, the Davis thing has gotten ugly at various points. And now it may well be, and I stress the word may because I don't know. But it's certainly possible, is it not, that he's being buried here, that the two sides have just kind of agreed, look, we don't want to cut you because the ownership won't let us cut you, but we don't want to play you. So we're just going to pay you, but you're going to have this back injury. You're going to go on the 60-day IL, and we'll kind of just take things from there. You know, I would not be stunned one bit if that's what's going on here between the Orioles and Chris Davis. It really is remarkable. It, It is legitimately one of the worst contracts in not just baseball history, but in sports history. And one more time, I endorsed this. I did. You know, the re-signing to me made a lot of sense 
especially from a team like the Orioles, which has loved to cry poor over the years. I really like them extending themselves to bring back a guy who had been really good for them the previous four seasons. But man, this thing could not have worked out any worse at this point, right? And to see what's happening here with Hyde bringing this up on Monday of, yeah, it might be a 60-day IL situation for Davis. Uh, you just had to shake your head at what has become of this. I will say this, though, from a perspective of where the Orioles are at. And obviously, the current management had nothing to do with re-signing Davis in January 2016. This was said, by the way, to very much be something that Peter Angelos wanted, re-signing Chris Davis. But this is, if in fact the Orioles have come up with this thing, and, and this is essentially a fake injury or an exaggerated injury, I actually think this is not a bad way to go. Because what inevitably damages teams with these big money contracts that don't work out, it's not just the guy himself not playing well, but it's the opportunity cost of because you're paying the guy a lot of money, you feel like you have to continue to play the guy and he takes away plate appearances from someone or some people who would be better. The Orioles aren't doing that with Davis. They're basically saying, okay, uh, yeah, we have to pay you, but it's a sunk cost. So we'll just pay you, but we'll pay you not to play. And we'll get our younger guys out there and let them play, you know, because we're not going to let your onerous contract inhibit or retard the development of our younger players, the guys who we're trying to build around, the guys who we're trying to groom to be a part of the next great crop of Orioles teams. You know, the last thing you want is a Chris Davis taking away plate appearances from, say, a Ryan Mountcastle. You know, that that is not that that makes a bad situation even worse. So if this injury is in fact something that has been drawn up or at the very least exaggerated, I don't blame the Orioles one bit for doing this. If this has been masterminded by the Orioles executive vice president and general manager, Mike Elias, more power to him. Uh, this actually would make a lot of sense. You take something that's not going away. Nobody's obviously going to trade for Chris Davis. You got to deal with it. It's a sunk cost. Just deal with it put them off to the side, play your younger players, and continue the all-in rebuild that the Orioles have been in the midst of here for now multiple seasons. All right, that will do it for you and for me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You tell me what you think about any and all things, including the Turge and the Terrapins. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. We are your DC Sports Express, Monday through Friday, out by 5 a.m., a podcast for you, the DC sports fan. We don't shove our politics down your throat. We don't shove our social views down your throat. We talk sports on this podcast because I feel like so often these days, you don't get the sports conversation that you're seeking. So I don't talk about what I had for lunch. I don't talk about my favorite foods. Okay, if you want that, you can go somewhere else. On this podcast, we dive headfirst every weekday, Monday through Friday, into our area teams, and we have a lot of fun doing that. So thank you for the continued support. Subscribe, rate, review, spread the word. Have a great rest of your Tuesday. I'll talk to you on Wednesday. Boy, that escalated quickly. I mean, that really got out of hand fast. Spring is in the air at Littleton Coin Company, and we want to help you brighten your collection. Visit us at littletoncoin.com all month long to enjoy 15% off your purchase. With a wide selection of coins, paper money, supplies, and more, Littleton Coin Company has something for every collector's taste. Use promo code SPRING at littletoncoin.com for 15% off your purchase all month long. Restrictions apply. Littleton Coin Company. Serving collectors since 1945.